Well, this morning uh, and over the course of, of Advent, we are starting a new sermon series. We're going to be looking together at the book of Micah. Uh, Micah is uh, one of the minor prophets uh, of Israel. It's a book that you may never have read before, let alone studied before. Uh, but it's an important book. It's an important book. Micah was a prophet. Uh, think of a prophet as like a messenger from God to God's people in the 8th century before Christ. So living around the same time as Isaiah, about in the 8th century before the coming of Jesus, at a time when Israel and Judah, the two nations of God's people, uh, were experiencing a great deal of worry, a great deal of fear and anxiety, a great deal of spiritual confusion, they lived uh, in a confrontation with the most powerful empire they had ever seen. The Assyrian Empire was just knocking on their doorstep, sweeping up the entire ancient Near East under its military power. And in that, they were worried. They were fearful. They didn't know where to turn. In their, in their worry, they often turned places other than to their God. And so God sent Micah as his messenger to his people in a difficult time. And I think we're going to find as we look at Micah, especially during this Advent season, that there's a world of overlap between where we live and where God's people back then lived and between God's message to them and what would be his message to us. And so as we look at Micah 1, I'm just going to, sometimes when you read the prophets, uh, it can be hard to make heads or tails of it. You'll hear all kinds of names and you'll see all kinds of visions and there'll be all kinds of stuff like that going on. It can be hard to, to understand them, like in the way that you would understand, say, a gospel account or a letter from the Apostle Paul. And so what we're going to see in Micah 1, there's going to be an address of who Micah is and who he's talking to. There's going to be a picture of God coming out of his temple to speak to his people. And it's going to show God move and address first the people of the northern part of Israel and then moving down towards the people of Judah, addressing particular towns of Judah talking to them about what's coming and what's happening and what he's doing in their lives. And so that's, that's what uh, you can listen for to be happening as we read Micah 1. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture is from Micah 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression, transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they will return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. 
Tell it not, tell it not in Goth, weep not at all in Bethlehem, Ephra. Roll yourselves in the dust, pass your way, inhabitants of Shafir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Morath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lassach. It, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morishith Gath, the houses of Axib, shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marsha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as an eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of God. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Leslie, gold star. That was... Uh, I, I think we we're going to have a harder time finding scripture readers during this series uh, than we have in others. We've called our sermon series in Micah, uh, A Weary World Rejoices. Uh, it's a, a line, um, of course, from a great Christmas hymn. But it's one that, that I think describes perfectly where we are uh, as a people and what we long for in Advent. Who's weary? Raise your hand if you're weary. Some of you are too weary to raise your hands. That is, that is tired. Weary. Think about what some of us, uh, what all of us together and some of us in particular have endured over the last year. Right? We're coming off of a, of a long, bitter, and divisive election. If you'd, I think that was a year, but if you had told me that it lasted three years, I'd believe you. It felt like we've just been dealing with that forever. Certain parts of our world seem stuck under the threat of violence daily. For another year. The divisions uh, in our own community, in our own nation, along racial lines and cultural lines and political lines that we so long to see come together in unity seem to be growing further apart, not closer together. And then that's just on a, on a large scale. Then we think about the things that we've suffered, uh, either as a church or as a family. Some of us have buried loved ones. Some of us have gone through difficult times. And then there's just the weariness that comes from life, from doing work, showing up day after day to a job that, that may or may not be fulfilling to you. Uh, going to school when you may or may not have friends or resonate with your teacher. Uh, being a parent. But I think, as I, you know, and, and I get to talk to a lot of you about what's going on in life, and one theme that I hear over and over again is weariness. And the good news is the holidays are coming, right? I mean, that's... Though it's something that we celebrate, it doesn't exactly offer a respite for many of us. Most of us, when we think about it, we think more pressure, more, more shopping, more hosting, more, more family tensions. We're weary. And the great hope of Advent, the hope of the gospel, it takes the weariness of this world very seriously. It doesn't pretend that life in this world is easy, uh, that life in this world shouldn't make you weary. It's a broken world. It, life within it, life under the sun is weary. But that real joy is possible. That real rejoicing is breaking into the world in the person of Jesus. And so a weary world rejoices is what we're hoping that God will do in our hearts over this Advent journey. That he would help us to acknowledge our weariness and then to find rest, to find restoration, to find hope in Christ. 
I've quoted this before, but it's one of my favorite. The the Irish poet David White uh, says that the cure for exhaustion isn't rest, but wholeheartedness. When you're exhausted, what you really need isn't a vacation. Uh, It's not to sleep in for a morning. It's wholeheartedness. It's to finally feel like we're not chasing after a million different things, seeking satisfaction, but that whole and put together before God, we live life with integrity. We live life with one hope and one sense of his love for us and one purpose. That's our hope for this Advent. That was Micah's hope uh, in his ministry among the people of Israel. As we said, Israel lived in the shadow, uh, as she perpetually did, in the shadow of these great empires. Uh, Israel and Judah, once God's one people had become fractured, two nations, and they lived in fear of the Assyrians. And if you were to ask the people of Israel and Judah, what's wrong with your life? What are you struggling with? They would have said, well, duh, it's kind of obvious. There's a massive empire that's on our front door that's about to take us over and, and, and make us their prisoners. Our problems are out there. That we are just pawns in this big international game, and we're just about to be be swept over by this army. And yet God, uh, through his prophet Micah, says this. He says, you know what your biggest problem actually isn't the Assyrian army. Uh, The drama that's going to determine your fate isn't your battle with the Assyrians. It's your own battle against sin and idolatry. That the real battle in your own heart, the real reason that you're in such desperate places is because you've been unfaithful to me. You've walked away from me. And this Assyrian thing is just a consequence. The pain that you're going through in your life is a consequence of a spiritual crisis provoked by your wandering away from me. And so let's look in Micah chapter 1 and see what God is up to in dealing with his people. The first thing that we see in this passage uh, is that there's a reality that we'd all prefer to avoid, but that that we fundamentally have to deal with. That God is a reality that each one of us has to deal with. The first five verses here show, as we said, this image of God coming out of the temple and moving into the midst of his people. And as he comes, uh, the sheer reality, the sheer glory and weight of his presence causes the earth to tremble and break down. The mountains start to melt. The the valleys start to break up. this, This massive, powerful, glorious God comes out of the temple, comes out of the place where they're used to dealing with him, and comes right out into the middle of the lives of his people. You know, the the sad part of our story, the story of humanity is this, that God who made us to live in communion with him, God who made us to be his friends and his children and to live our lives with him face to face, in our sin we pushed him out of our lives, out of the center of our lives further and further away, out and out into the margins. And yet God here is saying, you can't push me away forever. At the end of the day, I am the God with whom you have to deal with. I'm the reality uh, that you you can't convince yourself doesn't exist, you can't do away with forever, that sooner or later, you have to deal with the reality of a powerful and holy and good God. You know, the the name of the Lord, Uh, The way that God reveals himself to Moses and to his people is Yahweh, which translates I am. I am. That God is just the God who is. He's the God who, who has always been, who always will be. The God who doesn't cease to be when you cease to wish that he was. The God who doesn't cease to be when you're not sure if he's real. But the God who is always there. 
He is the God who judges us. We don't judge him. C.S. Lewis, um, in his great uh, little book of essays, God in the Dock, uh, the metaphor comes from a courtroom. He says that for most of human history, we recognized that God was on the judge's seat, that God was the judge of creation, and that humanity was in the dock. We were the ones that were sitting before God, being judged. But modern man, modern women, have switched the role where we sit in the judge's chair, and God sits on trial. And we, we try to make up our minds against God. Is he good enough for us? Is he just enough for us? Is he, is he the kind of God we can believe in? Lewis puts it this way. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And what goes on in this story is that, that God turns that around for us. We see the reality of who God is. He comes out of the temple. He comes to deal with us. And he makes it very, very clear that he's the one He's the one who calls us to account for our lives. He's the one who brings a diagnosis of our condition, a verdict on our state. Now, this, of course, is just objectively terrifying. Uh, to see this image of God coming out and all of the mountains, things that to us are massive and immovable, to see them crumble before him, this isn't good news. You know, fundamentally, what we celebrate at Christmas, God coming near to us, that ought to instill some sense of dread in our hearts, some sense of, uh-oh, I, I am not the kind of person that needs God rooting through my history. I am not the kind of person that needs God coming face-to-face -face with me and asking for an account of how I spend my time, where I spend my money, how I've spent my affections. That to be confronted by God before we get to the good news should first cause our stomach to sink a little bit and we go, oh, this is, this is bad news. Because he comes with us, first with the reality of his person that we have to deal with, but then a diagnosis that we have to accept. And his diagnosis of our lives goes far deeper than we wish that it would. Right? He comes to his people, he comes to Israel and Judah, and he, he, and he diagnoses them as sinners. But their sin isn't just the sin that we think of. It's not just sin as we've come to think of it in kind of uh, southern religious circles where they, you know, did some things they shouldn't have. They, they danced when they shouldn't have danced to music they shouldn't have listened to and they drank too much and they smoked cigarettes. That's, that's not what God's after here. That's not sin as he diagnoses it here. He actually says, no, no, your problem goes far, far deeper than your behavior. If your, if your problem was only skin deep, if it was only behavior deep, uh, you could go out and change it tomorrow, right? It, it might be hard. Quitting smoking's hard, right? Quitting an addiction of any kind is hard. But there's, there's ways, there's tricks, there's a support system. But he says, no, no, no. Your problem isn't that you do the wrong things. Your problem is fundamentally that in your heart, you are committed to worshiping things other than me. The, the diagnosis is idolatry. Uh, that made to worship God, made to find your trust and your security and your hope nowhere else but in God alone. Instead, you've taken that heart, made for me, and you've shopped it out. You said, oh, well, maybe this will make me happy. Maybe this will bring me fullness. Maybe this will make my, uh, my life whole and meaningful. And you've become an idolater. 
You've become someone who loves the wrong things too much and doesn't love me enough. And so that's what we see going on uh, in the rest of this chapter. He starts off uh, speaking to Israel. Now Israel, the, the northern kingdom, the northern, the northern half of the country, for Judah, for, the, for the, the rest of the country, to hear that Israel, the northern half, was idolatrous would have just confirmed what they already knew. When the nation split, the southern part kept Jerusalem, it kept the temple, it kept David's sons on the throne. They always, even though they were inconsistent and they were imperfect, they always thought of themselves as the ones who basically stayed loyal to Yahweh. And then the, the northerners, they had their own, they built their own temple, they built their own capital city in Samaria. They began to mingle their religion with the religions of their neighbors. And so first, in the first couple of verses, in verses 6 and 7, God comes to Israel, comes to that northern kingdom, and he says, you've been idolatrous. You've made graven images, and I'm going to shatter them. He likens it to prostitution. Did you catch that there in, uh, in verse 7? For, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Right? Over and over in the Bible, idolatry is compared to prostitution or to adultery. That, that just as adultery breaks a covenant relationship with a spouse, so idolatry breaks a covenant relationship with God. It's a, it's a breakdown of faithfulness. And further, to, to, to liken it to prostitution means that it cheapens it. It takes what was meant to be sacred and whole and intimate and makes it just for profit. It, just, it sells it out. And so he says that you've prostituted yourselves out with the religions of all your neighbors, and I'm coming to call you to account. Right? And thus far, the, the south, the, the, the kingdom of Judah, would have said, yeah, he's finally getting them. Right? He's finally calling those pagans to account. He's finally calling them to account for what they've done. But then, just like we, see, just like we saw over and over in the parables of Jesus, right? remember Jesus uh, came, yes, and he did, some, he did some critiquing of the lifestyle of those outside of God's people. But his, his, most, his most cutting insights his most um, revealing accusations were always for those who were comfortable in their own righteousness. Right? It was always for the religious teachers and the leaders of Israel. It was for those who thought, well, because I go to the temple and because I make my sacrifices and because I do the right things and I'm not like those other people, I know that I'm safe and I know that I'm good. And so in verse 8 and beyond, it's almost like God is moving down like the Assyrian army did from the north down into the south. And he says, yeah, but you're not getting off either. Because it's entirely possible, it's entirely possible to think that you're uh, an orthodox believer in God, to think that you're a good Israelite or a good Christian, to go to church on Sundays and functionally in your heart to still be an idolater. Right? There's, the scriptures tell us that it's the human heart's nature to worship, to find our ultimate hope in something. And there's people who, who say with their lips, I'm a Christian, that's how I identify. But my functional, the functional place that my heart goes to to know that I'm good and that I have worth is my money, or it's my race, or it's my political views, or it's my success, or it's my popularity, or it's my power. We go to other things to functionally fill us up. There's people who claim to be atheists, who claim that I have no God, that sacrifice so much of their own lives on the altar of some other God, be it prosperity or success or beauty, that we're all idol worshipers. 
And so uh, in verse 10, he gets into what is just this incredibly poetic. It's one of the most beautiful sections of the Bible as far as poetry goes. And it's, it's entirely lost to us because the names get weird and it's hard to understand exactly what he's doing. But when he goes through that, that list of, of city names that Leslie so boldly read and did such a great job with, and they seem so strange to us, what the prophet is doing is he's taking these place names, these cities in Israel, and he's labeling them according to the way that they found their significance and their security in life. We'll just look at a, at a few of them. Uh, the first one here, uh, Beth Afra, in Hebrew means uh, dirt town. Dirt town. I don't, know, I don't know how expensive real estate was in dirt town. Um, but it was, we think that it was called that because they prided themselves in the richness of their land. They prided themselves in, the, hey, our dirt is good dirt. You can plant stuff in our dirt, and it will grow record crops. And he says, hey there, dirt town, roll yourselves in the dust. That you think your prosperity and the, the fruit of your land is going to save you, it's all going to end up in dust that you're covered in. Uh, Safir. Uh, <clears throat> Safir means beauty town. Apparently a town that prided itself in the beauty of its city and the beauty of its land. And he says, you, you find yourself, you find your value in your beauty, you're going to walk out in nakedness and in shame. Zainan, do not come out. Zainan, we're told, means coming out town, which that's, that's a strange name for a city. But what we think that it meant was that at the time of battle, you could always count on the men of Zainan to come out for a fight. You could always count on them when the other towns found out there was a threat in the area, that they were going to come out and they were going to throw down and they were going to defend their neighbors. They were going to fight. They were a military town. And yet he says, in the face of Assyria, you, you boys who pride yourself in your fighting ability and your ability to come out for a fight, you're not going to answer the call. You're going to shrink away. And you're not going to be able to find your value and your strength or your courage. Lashish. Uh, when it says, harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lashish. The chariot... Uh, was, the, was the cutting edge military technology of the day. It was the equivalent of the top secret military airplanes that are in development. It was the equivalent of drones and things that, that only you know, the most sophisticated societies had, only the most powerful armies had in their possession, and to have them meant that you were almost in, unbeatable in the field. And instead he says, listen, Lashish, you think you're going to hitch up your chariots, your technology, your power, and come out to battle? You're going to hitch your horses to your chariots and you're going to turn tail and run to get as far away from the Assyrians as you can. Your technology is never going to save you. And then Marashah, we're told, means prosperity town. This is a town that prided itself in its wealth and its value and the, that it was a, had a vibrant and thriving economy. It was a wealthy place. And he says, I'm going to bring a conqueror to you and the glory of Israel shall come to Ajulam. It's a, it's a a foreign city. So you pride yourself in your wealth. Your wealth is going to get conquered and it's going to come to nothing. And so what he's doing, you see what he's doing, is, is he's saying, listen, you think your problem is the Assyrians, but all the Assyrians are doing are exposing the functional place that your heart has trusted to be its hope, to be its trust, to be its security apart from Yahweh. And that's what, that's what difficulty does in our lives. That's what the external pain and suffering that we go through in our lives does. It reveals to us those false places that we've placed our trust, that we've placed our security. 
You know, for most of my life, I can, I can chart it from grade school up till this morning, um, I have been prone to find my identity, uh, to find my worth in my success and in the approval of other people. Uh, for, for a lot of my life, that played itself out in sports. I loved uh, being a good football player. And I was, I was actually, this is how bad I am, as a, my heart is. I was not a great football player. <laughs> I wasn't even that good at it. Like, you can forgive Tom Brady if he thinks he's awesome. Um, I was, you know, a mediocre high school defensive end that wasn't big enough or fast enough to really do much with it. But I loved it. It was what I thought made me a man. It's what I thought made me a, a somebody worth knowing in the high school. It was what I attached my identity to. I was the kid who would wear his varsity letter jacket uh, to school when it was 80 degrees outside because um, I wanted everybody to know that I was a football player. Um, and then going into my senior year, I uh, started a series of injuries that ended up ending my football career. I broke a vertebrae in my back. I got back from that. I dislocated two shoulders um, when I was in, in college. And if you had asked me at any of those times, Dave, what are you struggling with in life? What's your problem? I'd say, I'll tell you what's my problem. It's, that, it's this bone in my back that broke, and it's these shoulders that keep coming out of socket that are keeping me from living my dream and being as successful as I could be and being the, the jock that everybody knows. But what God knew then, and what I can see looking back on it, is what God was doing through the pain and suffering of that moment was stripping me of something that I found my identity in and saying, you, you, can't, you can't live by this. You can't live based on people, on your success or people thinking highly of you. you you're never going to be who you're supposed to be. You're never going to be who I created you to be if you live with that as your God. And you know what? You're so thick-headed and so arrogant, you're never going to learn that lesson if I let you just keep being moderately successful at it, <laughs> right? Um, it's it's going to take something hard. It's going to take something painful. And so as a... 22-year-old when I stopped playing football, I think, okay, great, got the lesson, can't find my identity or my worth and what I do or my success or, or, my, or, or anything. And then I become a pastor. And I realize, oh, no, <laughs> the same exact way that 16-year-old Dave used football and my success on the field to prove myself and to be my worth, I can absolutely find my calling uh, to do that very same thing. You know, this morning, so I, said, I used this morning as an example, I was sitting down like a good pastor uh, to do my Advent Bible reading, and I worked hours on this thing. I was really proud of it. I loved it. I found a typo <laughs> on the first day, like not, not tucked away in day 37 or something where you're like, oh, you can forgive Dave. He's busy. He probably didn't get to day 37. No, day one, there's a typo, and immediately again, I was confronted with that same thing. Oh, no, everybody's going to see the typo. Right? Um, oh, what? I spent hours on it. I couldn't even edit. Immediately, I'm put right back in that same moment where what's your identity? Is your identity your idol? Is your identity your, what people think of you and you're doing well? Have you grown at all since you're a cocky 16-year-old? That's what God uh, is after in our lives. He's after our hearts. He's after taking what we functionally trust in in removing that love off of those lesser things, whether it be success and popularity uh, and approval like it's been for me or whether it's your family, whether it's your money, whether it's your comfort, your control, 
He wants to move your heart off of that thing and onto the one thing that he knows, can only, the only thing he thinks can satisfy you. And so there's a response that he calls us to. There's a, a reality we have to deal with. There's this uh, re, uh, diagnosis we have to come to terms with. And then there's this response. The response he calls uh, for from us is repentance. Uh, in verse 8, Micah himself, the prophet, goes through this elaborate uh, kind of ritual of mourning and repentance. He says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. I, I don't know what that means. I don't, I've never looked at ostriches and thought, that's a, that's a mourning animal. Um, but in this, in this poetic world, he's, visiting, he's saying, I'm going to wail. I'm going to mourn. I'm going to have sorrow over what's going on here, over my idolatry and the idolatry of my people. In verse 16, he calls the people to repentance. He says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. You know, the point of God's confronting his people, the point of God's bringing up their idolatry and bringing up their sin is never to make them just wallow in it, it's never to make them just beaten up with guilt. It's never to make them resign to say, oh, well, I guess, we're, I guess we've been idolatrous and we're going to get beat by the Assyrians. I guess that's what's going to happen. The goal was always that they would repent and turn their hearts back to him. The goal is always restoration uh, of God's wayward people to himself. The name Micah, uh, often in the prophets, their name is a key to the understanding of their ministry. The name Micah means who is like the Lord? Who is like Yahweh? Who is like a God uh, who would forgive even his wayward people? Who would forgive even his idolatrous people? Who at the first turning of their hearts away from their idols and to him would just reach out and shower them in grace? The book ends. Um, Micah uses his own name in the kind of culmination of the book. Look at the very last verses. Uh, Micah 7 Verses 18, starting verse 18. This is the end that this whole book is building to. He says, who is a God like you? Remember Micah, who is like Yahweh? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, these very same people that have abandoned him. Have you sworn to our fathers from the days of old? That's what we long for. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what's going on in the manger is that God's come near to us not to condemn us, but to take our sins and to hurl them into the sea, to gather them at the cross and to punish them there and then to do away with them forever. That's why we can repent. That's why we can turn from our idols, turn from those lesser loves, and turn our hearts towards God, knowing that in Jesus, he gives us this abundant, lavish love and grace. To repent is to turn our hearts away from our idols into Jesus. I came across this story uh, this week. It's, a, it's from the memoir of a man named Gavin Peacock. Uh, as if the name didn't tell you, Gavin is an Englishman. And uh, Jonathan's not here for me to make my Englishman jokes. Um, but uh, Gavin Peacock uh, was an Englishman. He's a footballer, as they would say, as we would say he was a soccer player. Um, he was the son of a professional soccer player uh, who himself lived with this pressure to follow in his dad's footsteps, 
uh, to become a great soccer player. He was not as big or as tall as his dad, so his dad taught him some of the best footwork uh, that soccer had seen in, in kind of among his contemporaries. And he, he achieved the dream. He, became a, he made the big leagues, the English Premier League, as a soccer player. He went to Newcastle, one of the major, uh, major programs, and was a very, very successful soccer player. But this is the way, as a 16-year-old, he got into the farm system, and by 18, he was playing in the equivalent of the major leagues. And this is what he says. He says, but I was an insecure young man in the cutthroat world of professional sports. Soccer was my god. If I played well on a Saturday, I was high. If I played poorly, I was low. My sense of well-being depended entirely on my performance. And I soon realized that achieving the goal wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Then, when I was 18, God intervened in my life. I was still struggling to find purpose, so I decided to attend a local church. I don't remember what the minister preached on. Of course, they never remember what we preach on. <laughs> but afterward, he invited me into his house, where he and his wife hosted a weekly youth Bible study. I rolled up in the car that I had bought, a 1980s icon Ford, Esco Ford Escort XR3i. Yet when they spoke about Jesus, they displayed a life and a joy that I did not have. They talked about sin as if it had consequence and about God as if they knew him. I decided to return to the Bible study the following week and the next, and I began to hear the gospel for the first time. I realized that my biggest problem wasn't whether I met the disapproval of a 20,000-strong crowd on Sunday or Saturday. My biggest problem was my sin and the disapproval of an almighty God. I realized that the biggest obstacle to happiness was that soccer was king instead of Jesus, who had provided a perfect righteousness for me. Over time, my eyes were opened through that Sunday meeting, and I turned, repented, and believed the gospel. My heart still burned for soccer, but it burned for Christ more. That's what repentance is. That's what God's after in our heart. It's not that the good things that we love in life would cease to matter to us. Right? He said, soccer still mattered to me. I still wanted to be a good soccer player. We can still want to have a, a healthy family. We can still want to have a fruitful career. Uh, we can still want to have friends. Those things can still matter. But when Jesus is king and those things aren't king, then they don't have the power to run our lives. They don't have the power to fail us and let us down. He realized that soccer was king instead of Jesus. It's probably not soccer for you. We're Americans. For very few of us, is it soccer? Uh, but I guarantee you that there's something in your life that vies for the crown, uh, that vies for the throne of your life. And this Advent is about focusing the longing of our hearts uh, to the only king who can save and the only source that can satisfy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to be and to become a people who have no other king, a people whose hearts are increasingly set free from lesser loves, a people whose hearts are set free to worship the God who gave himself in the flesh and blood broken on the cross for us. Lord, deliver us from idols. Lord, help us to be faithful to you in our time. Lord, help us to not look out uh, at the scary forces that we're up against in our lives, the powers that seem beyond us, but help us to examine ourselves uh, and to be in the midst of a difficult in weary age, a people who are daily finding our renewal and our joy in your grace through your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.